With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum, an internal audit and compliance consulting firm headquartered in Los Angeles, California. I'm also a well-known speaker on topics like COSO 2013, SOX 404, quality assessment reviews, internal auditing, and related topics. Today's interview is with James Scott Ferguson. James has been a member of the legal and accounting profession for over 20 years. He has worked for a variety of reputable organizations, including Deloitte, Dow, Chase, IBM, and the Federal Reserve Bank. James has conducted audits and legal-related services in California, New York, Texas, Louisiana, Georgia, Ohio, and Arizona, just to name a few. He is the author of Legal Services Auditing Process, published by the IAA Research Foundation, and he has lectured in Asia, Europe, North America, and Latin America to professionals in his field. Welcome, James. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Now, James, I do want to get into the audit of legal services, and I just wanted a quick reminder to everyone listening that they can read your full article that was published in the IA magazine on my blog at www.avivaspectrum.com forward slash blog. With that uh, underway, now James, I wanted to get into my first question, which is where companies have both internal and external legal teams, how does the audit team do a balanced and comprehensive audit of both those functions? Great question. With respect to deciding how much time and attention to pay to each of those functions, it is an ad hoc, case-by-case basis. You want to do some preliminary analytics to see how much weight of legal work is performed by both internal and external counsel, the gravity and magnitude of that service rendered by each, um, the criticality of it and concentrate audit time accordingly. So with respect to whether to focus primarily on internal or external, that's going to be case by case depending on the organization and the legal services being rendered by each. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it's not just hard numbers you got to look at in terms of dollars being spent. You're looking at other qualitative uh, analysis like you stated earlier, such as what's a priority for the organization or maybe a, a, some other exposure from, let's say, their key stakeholders or let's say it's a press release issue that uh, they want to handle correctly and they've hired external counsel. But right now at the infancy stage, it's it's just not big dollars, but it's really important in terms of the reputation of an organization. Um, I wanted to talk more about the effectiveness and efficiency audit techniques and more specifically, how does an auditor provide you know, the opportunity to improve 
not only the efficiency for an internal internal counsel that they may have, but the effectiveness and efficiency of external counsel as well. Historically, the audit of legal counsel is focused on billable hours, excessive billing, things of that nature. I've tried to steer the direction of the audit into that area that you mentioned, focusing on the efficiencies and effectiveness of counsel. So both internal and external measurements are similar. Uh, You can look at simplistic measures of effectiveness, such as win-loss ratio. Um, Also, with respect to efficiencies, you can look at how expedited legal matters are processed, uh, you know, different varieties of aging schedules can be employed. So you can measure both the effectiveness and the efficiency. There are a plethora of different vehicles or tools, if you will, that can be on the dashboard of general counsel. The goal is to segue general counsel into a continuous monitoring dashboard environment where they are perpetually measuring that success of effectiveness as well as the efficiency of providing the legal services within a timely manner. So both are important measures. I would weigh them equally. Mm-hmm. So it seems like a dashboard analysis, and more importantly, there's a a triggering event, and it's it's happening on a regular basis, whether it's like, a I guess, a monthly meeting or a quarterly update with the key board members involved in monitoring uh, legal activities. So what the sense I'm getting from you is to really hone in on, to get up to the effectiveness and efficiency of evaluating these uh, two uh, types of teams, a dashboard is almost like a critical element to have in terms of a, a reporting from them to the key stakeholders, and in most cases it's going to be the board. Now, in my profession, dealing with primarily internal audits, dealing with SAS compliance, it's extremely rare that we get invited to perform audits on legal services. And I think it's more of a a reluctancy of companies. And and I'm not sure what is the myth that's driving that reluctancy to even audit legal services. Can you shed some light to our listeners as to why companies are reluctant to perform audits on legal services? Sure. Uh, May I preface it? is saying I I have never been denied the audit of legal, either external or internal. The myth out there is that you're going to waive a privilege, you're going to breach confidentiality. Um, Those are surmountable. Those concerns are easily, uh, the auditor is easily able to navigate around those concerns. So with respect to breaching confidentiality or waiving privileges, we can audit around sensitive areas, often they aren't terribly material to the audit process. So it's just important to document those scope limitations and proceed with the audit. But in terms of very large organizations, uh, Fortune 500 organizations, large law firms where I've been invited to do the audit, again, I've never been denied uh, executing the audit of legal counsel. And to this state haven't heard a reasonable justification for a complete bar. Mm -hmm. So really the the issue about sensitive or confidential information, those issues can be dealt with. And and could you give our listeners 
about how an audit team can work around those sensitive and confidential information issues that, you know, the legal team, let's say, pushes back for whatever reason, saying, gosh, you could breach XYZ. Um, could you give some advice as to how the team can work around that? I can not only address that, but also emphasize that it's an opportunity for the team to build trust with legal. If you work with legal in identifying the sensitive and very, uh, very safeguarded areas that legal uh, is, is worried about, it's an opportunity for audit to acknowledge uh, legal's concerns, to work with legal to navigate around those concerns, and Interestingly enough, when I participated with legal in those assessments, they tend to be more forthcoming with data, with information, in later days as the audit proceeds. So the nice thing about it, it's not only a uh, task that is achievable with the audit and legal teams working together and isolating those areas of concern, but it's also an opportunity for the audit team to build a trust relationship with legal and legal, in turn, is more uh, forthright with respect to divulging sensitive information that can help the auditor better assess legal operations. Mm -hmm. So it seems like there's there's a need to have proper communication between the two teams, the audit team and the legal team, and more importantly, maybe getting you know pen to paper and saying, okay, if it's uh, I don't know, so social security number related issues uh, that are sensitive or it's confidential and it ties into some employment law-related matter, um, maybe the audit team works with legal and say, okay, well, let's say we don't have the SSI number. Okay, we just stick to the employee ID number or carve out X numbers out of the SSI to create a unique numbering sequence just to get the audit done. So you get that confidence from the legal team that, hey, I'm listening to you. I understand your concerns. Let's work together to address those concerns in the audit steps, which actually leads me to another key question, which is what can you walk us through some of those just high-level critical steps involved in auditing uh, the company's legal services? The Arguably the most important step is to effectively conduct your walkthrough. So the initial walkthrough as well as the front-end interviewing will have a significant effect on the rest of the audit. The planning of the internal control questionnaires, the planning of mining data, getting preliminary assessment work done, that will yield tremendous amounts of information that will lead to um, redesign of the audit program, um, amendments to the audit program, um, reshaping the audit program. So while you walk in with an audit program you plan to execute, preliminary steps in the area of uh, assessments on data, interviewing client personnel, that often yields uh, a lot of fruit and it navigates the attention of the auditor towards certain areas of high risk. Um, moving forward, during the audit, you'll assess a battery of different controls. Uh, there are a litany of controls you'd look for during the course of auditing legal, especially with respect to the requisition of external counsel. 
the management of caseload, how it's done. You'll often see prescribed legal management software used, but often the software doesn't address all of the control concerns related to the management of legal services. In addition to that, you will get granular down to the area of looking at and assessing actual bills and invoices from external counsel, testing their reasonableness, and ensuring that they are recorded timely as well as accurately. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad that you brought in the concept of walkthroughs and, more importantly, the interview process within that step, that audit step. Uh, a lot of people have been using the checklist approach, meaning I'll just send this out to my auditee, have the checklist answered, and then I, quote-unquote, gain an understanding of the legal services process. And the audit rules have changed, both for auditing a private organization versus, and, and also the public uh, publicly traded companies. And that interview process, I think, is a critical link to get the depth of knowledge you need about how the legal process works and how they make those critical judgments, because a lot of it is a judgment call in terms of legal strategies. And you do need that interview process to say, well, what if this were to happen, or how do you come across this situation? Uh, what's the process of executing? So I'm glad that you brought that in to our listeners, because we found uh, as well certain uh, design gaps. It, that, that's more of our little SOX 404 field term, but also we can find operational weaknesses, but in the interview process, it's a key finding for us to say, you know, we got some in-depth knowledge, we interviewed uh, the key stakeholders here in this process, and we found some design gaps because these risks aren't met. So those weaknesses really kind of, they bubble up to the surface very, very quickly, which leads me into the question about weaknesses in legal processes. I mean, what are the most likely weaknesses that you've seen that show up in an audit of legal services? The mismanagement of limited legal resources. Um, you have monetary constraints. You have personnel constraints. And it's not directing legal resources um, to optimize them. It's failure to measure the ROI of legal work done. Um, whether it is cost beneficial to proceed with the certain legal um, proceedings, if you will, and uh, a lot of times it is a tail wagging the dog scenario where a business or management decision isn't made. It is more law firm driven with respect to services being rendered. In many environments, the way the engagement is set up, there's a disincentive for especially external counsel to move the case to close because their livelihood, their payment is very directly related to the longevity or the amount of time the proceeding will take. So we want to make the organization and external counsel goal congruent, but also an mm -hmm. internal counsel as well, underutilization of that resource, uh, not looking at issues such as case turnover ratios and things of that nature, which will allow general counsel to objectively measure whether or not they're getting the best bang for their buck. Mm -hmm. Right, and I think it, it ties into some of those, the best use of those billable hours for external counsel, which I wanted to bring that back up. Um, 
although billable hours may not be the sole focus of an audit, what would be the most meaningful tests to measure and assess billable hours? You want to look at their accuracy. You want to look at their reasonableness. You want to look at the booking of the billable hours, vouching and tracing the numbers uh, to supporting documents and up into the GL. But you also want to look at the categorization of them, whether or not they are um, congruent with other parties billing for the same service rendered. It's an opportunity to look at controls that can easily lower billable hours. It's also looking at increments of billable hours. Are the increments reasonable? You can often uh, work with a client to allow for a structured billing process that's an alternative to billable hours. And we often will make the recommendation of looking at a, a tiered billing system rather than a straight billable hour because if the client is billed by the hour all the time, that's a disincentive for legal counsel to operate in an efficient manner. This interview you're conducting, if you were billing me by the hour, I were billing you, we would talk and talk and talk. So there would be a disincentive to continue and move towards a more concise answer and resolution to problems facing the organization in the context of rendering legal services. Uh, the bill allows a disincentive to move issues to close. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you mentioned the recommendation that, that you commonly find, which is a tiered billing system to be implemented for companies. Uh, in our world, in terms of the internal audit final report, whether it's for SOS compliance or a performance audit, there are key components that we include in our uh, audit reports. What are the key components an auditor should include in their report that a corporation should look for? They should report on uh, the financial piece of legal services, the control piece of legal services, the sub-optimization of legal services, and also operational audit findings, areas that we have really successfully brought an awareness to not just the legal department but the organization as a whole is the wealth of legal services provided by the legal department unknown to many stakeholders of the organization. So simplistic things such as rolling out the menu of legal services offered by internal counsel can often mitigate uh, external departments hiring their own external counsel. Um, things such as that are an opportunity within the report to bring to fruition meaningful change. Reduce costs and have internal counsel providing services on a regular basis, which they're already ramped up and geared to do. Mm-hmm. So those reports not only have key findings of controls, but also optimization efforts, which basically it turns into recommendations. Uh, in the report. So it's similar, it sounds like, to a performance audit or a SOX compliance audit where, yeah, the, the meat of the audit included, you know, the accuracy of billing, some, some data analytics done, a reasonableness test, but then it's followed by, here are some key findings, and by the way, here are some recommendations. So similar to a regular internal audit type of report. 
Now, I wanted to switch gears for a quick moment and, and have you talk to us about what you've been building at uh, LSU as a faculty member with a JDMS in the finance program. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I teach at both the business school and the law school uh, the class that we have developed with the two schools um, is a JDMS class for both MS and finance students and those seeking the JD degree. The class is comprised of uh, a variety of different guest lecturers that come in and give the students a hands-on view and hands-on experience with respect to mergers and acquisitions, due diligence checklists, um, fiduciary duties facing executive officer, executives and officers of the organization. Uh, it's a very, very fascinating experience because we blend the theory with the practice and have folks that have closed major commercial transactions come to the table with specific examples students can take with them going forward. The JDMS degree is a three-and-a-half-year degree where the student can earn both the JD law degree as well as the MS in finance. Students pursuing that are looking at careers in uh, hedge fund management, in banking, um, and creative financing, things of that nature. So it's an exciting new curriculum that we have developed, and we're one of the few schools that offer such a joint degree. Uh, yeah, I have not seen it here locally, I can tell you that, and three and a half years is, I don't think it's a lot of time to have that combination, and then especially you're, you're marrying the uh, subject matter experts, especially when, when you were talking about the M&A transactions and bringing in people who live and breathe that world, and more importantly, uh, sharing war stories as well as success stories to a classroom. I can't tell you how invaluable that is because I, I read some statistic that well over 70% of M&A transactions fail based on certain criteria. And so when you bring in those subject matter experts, especially with a classroom setting, it's giving them a preview of something that they may or may not want to fully engage in, or at least they, they are going in it with their eyes wide open. Seems like a very exciting program. Now, I also wanted to talk a little bit about your article and your connection with the IIA, if, if you don't mind. Um, how did you end up writing for the IAA? And also, if you could share some of the doors that have opened for you because of this article. Well, uh, the relationship between the IIA and myself started over 20 years ago. I found the legal profession and the internal audit profession to be very similar. My first article with them was comparing and contrasting law and internal auditing, that they were similar with respect to the building of a case when you're championing a recommendation as an auditor, you're building a case, you're gathering evidence to support it. I found preparing for trial to be very similar to preparing for an audit committee presentation. And from there, developed materials in the area of auditing intellectual property and auditing legal counsel. Lately, I've been doing a lot with the IIA in the context of auditing contract best practices and also internal auditor liability. 
So it has grown, and it's exciting. The wonderful thing is I meet a variety of people from different backgrounds, and I'm learning. It's wonderful. Yeah, I agree, and I want to personally thank you for sharing some of these door-opening experiences that you've provided to our listeners, and I do hope our listeners will take up at least a minimum cost to volunteer with the IAA and possibly offer some of the best practices to our profession like you did in in sharing your thoughts about auditing legal services. And I want to say it's been a huge honor to have uh, James, uh, you as my guest today, and I want to thank you for your time today, and I know it's been a very interesting topic that our audience will get a great value in understanding some of the key techniques when faced with the challenge of auditing legal services. Uh, for me, it's, it's no surprise, of course, that the audit of a corporation's legal services can lead to improved efficiencies and significant cost savings for organizations or that a skillful audit team also has the opportunity to provide great insights to improve legal practices. And again, thank you for bringing these points to life for our listeners, James. I appreciate the opportunity. The overall goal is to build a better legal department and to that end, I appreciate all of your time and the opportunity to address your audience. Thank you so much. All right. This is Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum, signing off. Just a reminder, you can find James' entire article on auditing legal services on my blog at www.avivaspectrum.com forward slash blog. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.